You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Germany observes the anniversary of Kristallnacht at a moment when 85 years seems uncomfortably recent. Another heat of the Republican race to finish second to Donald Trump. And is someone incapable of asking how much would a woodchuck woodchuck if a woodchuck woodchuck would necessarily inebriated? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lynn O'Donnell and Bill Hayton will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Lynn O'Donnell, columnist for Foreign Policy magazine, and by Bill Hayton, Associate Fellow at Chatham House's Asia-Pacific Programme. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Lynn, as I understand it, and I can promise our listeners that this anecdote does pick up speed swiftly, you have been to Bootle. <laughs> <laughs> I have, um, to a village called Polton la Fylde. Okay. Yeah. I I, I half suspect you of having just made that up. Um, yeah, well, I thought that I had too. I thought I might have been dreaming. It was really lovely and the people were friendly. The weather was awful, but um, it wasn't London and it was rather exotic for me. It's and near Liverpool for viewers who, <coughs> viewers who don't know. Uh, it is, I, as I understand it, near Liverpool. Um, what is it you were doing there? And feel free to go ahead and plug the article that resulted. Oh, OK. I went to interview a man called Kevin Cornwell who was held hostage by the Taliban in uh, the basement of um, a building in Kabul for nine months. He's a, um, a medic and he was there to work with um, underprivileged people in need of medical care and he was arbitrarily arrested on trumped up charges of having an illegal firearm even though it had been registered with the Taliban and he was held without access to hygiene facilities or medicine that he needed for his kidney stones um, or even a change of clothes for nine months and he got out um, he was released on um, the weekend of the 7th or 8th of October um, That does sound like a terrifically tedious experience and you would of course have plenty of experience to bring to bear on that having covered uh, Afghanistan for many years and having been at least once if much more briefly detained by the Taliban yourself Yeah, Well indeed um, uh, Afghanistan has become a place where there is no law and the sort of um, uh, experience that Kevin and um, other foreigners um, are going through, there's still a lot of foreigners who are being held in Taliban custody. It's arbitrary and um, the uh, groups within the Taliban leadership have a long history of using foreigners as uh, uh, leverage for uh, getting money or getting um, their own people released from prisons um, abroad. And uh, this hostage diplomacy is a, is a tried and true um, uh, strategy of, of the Taliban and their leadership. And the piece is live now, right, on the yes, Mail on Sunday website? Mail on Sunday, and the chap's name is Kevin Cornwell, and he really is a, is a hero, I think. Well, that story should be easily found and should definitely be very much read. Uh, Bill, you, meanwhile, our listeners may not be aware... 
are taking those first steps towards becoming a, a, a successor to Dennis Thatcher. Indeed, I'm, I'm practising walking 10 feet behind my wife. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is running for Parliament and, uh, yeah, I have to do the uh, the, the husbandly duties. Um, this, this is potentially quite exciting. She is uh, the Labour candidate in where? In Colchester, in, in east of England. Um, uh, Labour haven't won Colchester since 1945. But this year, or, or the next 12 months, is the moment, I think. It's, uh, the, the polls are looking good. Although no, what the polls actually mean, no one can actually tell. Have you actually been obliged to turn up at any events? Oh, I've, I've, I've op- well, I haven't quite opened fates, but I've definitely visited allotments and um, I'll be doing all the civic duties, you can be sure of it. Excellent. What kind of small talk does one make at an allotment? Do you get into conversations? I, 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 I try with... to avoid comments about melons or, or, <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, well, we, we look forward to hearing much more about that. Uh, as the election draws closer, but we will start the show proper in Germany, which is today noting the 85th anniversary of the anti-Jewish pogrom by Nazi paramilitaries, remembered by history as Kristallnacht. Its memory endures as a benchmark for statements of violent intent by extremists and for warnings unheeded by complacent authorities assuming that such manias will burn themselves out. This year's Kristallnacht observances have been lent unpleasant resonance by a recent resurgence in anti-Semitic nonsense across Europe perpetrated by the malevolent and or crazy seizing upon the current war in the Middle East as an excuse. Um, Bill, first of all, the depressing fact where Europe is concerned is that this stuff never really goes away, does it? No, I guess ebbs and flows, and and it's flowing particularly nastily at the moment. And uh, this idea that somehow people who feel outraged about the situation in the Middle East would think that it was appropriate to go and take that outrage out on you know somebody who has no connection to it, but in this country, other than you know sharing a, a religion or, or faith. Um, uh, but across across Europe, I mean, in the whole of the EU is supposed to have a sort of anti uh, anti Semitism strategy in every country, but uh, you know half of the states haven't got one. So um, you know, and, and and France, the left seem to be ripping themselves apart about whether they want to take part in a march against anti Semitism because the the far right, um, you know, party are going to take part. So therefore, the far left are not going to take part. And you just think this is kind of you know getting crazy. Um, ironically, I guess, all things considered, Lynn, it is arguable that Germany recognises the danger of this better than any other country. Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, spoke recently at a synagogue in Berlin which had been firebombed and described himself as ashamed and outraged. But has anybody yet really figured out what you can do about it? Because you kind of find yourself dealing with that trap of trying to reason people out of something they never reasoned themselves into. Um, I I think that it's you're right about Germany having put a lot of effort into it um, since World War Two. Their history is seared, especially on younger generations. I think, and there was a long period when I was living abroad when I would meet young German people who would um, just volunteer the information about um, how they felt about it and what sort of reconciliations that were being uh, made in German society. And since um, October the seventh, there has been a, a lot of effort. Um, at the upper echelons of the German government, I think, to um, get across the message that anti-Semitism is not acceptable in any way at all. A couple of Hamas-related charities, for instance, have been banned. And, um, uh, uh, you know, we've seen these, as you say, the Kristallnacht um, commemorations. But it seems to me that um, anti-Semitism in Europe isn't really very... far below the surface. And entrenched ideas are 
um, very easily expressed in the current uh, fraught environment. And even you have even very smart people who are, they don't want to listen to the other side because if I listen to the other side, I might have to take into account that there's another opinion besides mine. And, you know, friends of mine here in London are um, expressing very deep fear for their personal safety. Uh, Yeah, this is something I have heard myself as well, Bill. And on a related note, there will be this weekend in London another march, uh, ostensibly a march in solidarity with Palestine, which is obviously in and of itself no problem at all. But is there a worthwhile point to be made noting that few, if any, of the people who will turn up this weekend or have turned up on previous weekends really had all that much to say about, for example, Saudi Arabia uh, obliterating an Arab country in Yemen, uh, or indeed the government of Syria obliterating the the country it was supposed to be governing. Or the ongoing crisis in Sudan or Myanmar, or or take your pick. It's, yeah, it seems the, um, you know, these expressions, I mean, you know, Let's not deny the fact that there's a grave crisis going on in Gaza. Thousands of people are being killed and many more injured. Um, And, you know, we'd all like to see that violence stop. But why is it that certain, you know, causes pick up national opinion and and, and others don't? And it seems to me it's a lot about, um, you know, what people think of themselves and how they express themselves and, you know, kind of how they define their identity. Um, And we've kind of copped to this position, certainly in Britain, I think, where, as you were saying, there is no sort of sense that there being a safe space, if you like, where we could sort of discuss this and realise the complexities involved. You know, people, you know, people are polarising, taking opposite positions and, you know, and and there are politicians out there who are, you know, willing to capitalise on that rather than trying to kind of create some sense of, you know, you know, in a year's time, where are we going to be and how are we going to get to that point? Well, on the subject of politicians willing to capitalise on that, Lynn, this weekend's march uh, scheduled in London has been the centre of a particularly heated row because it will be coinciding with Remembrance Day, uh, November 11th, which is on Saturday, uh, and it will be passing reasonably close uh, to the Cenotaph on Whitehall, which is the the centre of uh, those observances. The Home Secretary in particular, Suella Braverman, has tried to make a thing out of suggesting that it is not appropriate to have uh, the pro-Palestine march at the same time or on the same day at least uh, as the remembrance ceremonies. Is is she trying to make a fight out of nothing very much really? Well, this is another thing about, um, uh, as Bill was saying, it it, it polarises, but it's also, um, it's easily grabbed by political opportunists. Mm. And um, I, I... Let's say it. Suella Braverman is a political opportunist, and I and um, some of the other things that she's been saying recently are really egregious. And um, I, I feel like we should describe her as Home Secretary as of this broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, up to this minute, um, yeah, she's still in the job. But uh, I mean, this is a woman who uses um, uh, homeless people, uh, poor people, um, uh, immigrants who've uh, risked their lives to get away from war zones as political capital. So I kind of discount her um, attempt to whip up hysteria around uh, whether or not pro-Palestine um, marches 
coincide in the same city with um, the Remembrance Day um, uh, uh, commemorations. And I had a long think about this. And at first I thought, well, you know, this is something that is really very close to the British experience and expression of its identity, the the armistice and the poppies and all of that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. But I also think that what was fought for was the freedom to express mm-hmm. the um, uh, the opinions and the feelings that the people who want to march alongside or round the corner or whatever for um, uh, pro-Palestinian causes um, uh, uh, should be able to do. Yeah. So I think it's worth saying on this that, that you know Britain, un- unlike perhaps other countries in Europe, we don't mark the Armistice Day specifically, apart from the minute silence at eleven o'clock. Mm. Our commemoration is on Remembrance Sunday. So, you know, people go shopping and play football on Armistice Day. You know, if you, it, it, it's, it's Remembrance Sunday that's the national commemoration. Uh, just finally on this, though, Bill, is, is it arguable, do you think, that politicians trying to make a thing out of it actually makes trouble more likely? Because they, they do create a more febrile atmosphere around the event. Well, heaven, heaven for then I suggest that maybe that could be this politician's intention. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, to Spain now, where news that a deal has been struck which will enable Pedro Sanchez to crack on as Prime Minister has been overshadowed by an attempt on the life of Alejo Vidal Cuadras, former head of the Popular Party in Catalonia, more recently a co-founder of conservative populist party Vox. Vidal Cuadras was shot in the face in Madrid earlier today, assailant and motive both presently unknown. Sanchez, meanwhile, proposes to continue governing with the support of Hunts, a Catalonian separatists led from afar by Carles Puigdemont, still exiled in Belgium to avoid imprisonment for his part in the illegal independence referendum of 2017. Um, Lynn, first of all, fundamentally, is it actually quite weird to do a deal with a party which is led by a fugitive from justice whose whole thing is wanting to break up the country you're trying to govern? Well, weren't we just talking about political opportunism? <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's what this is about, isn't it? Getting up the numbers so that you can make up for um, a, a fairly, um, what, what would be the word, a, a non-definitive election. Um, just so, yeah, I think that this is political opportunism and um, there seems to be a lot of uh, argy-bargy about it. A lot of um, people in Spain are very much against it. The European Council has also expressed some uh, uh, discontent about it. But if it means um, heading towards a level of political stability in a country that needs it, then, yeah, go for it. Just say it. I mean, Bill, as as Lynn suggests, it was not an electoral triumph uh, for the socialists, the most recent election. In fact, they didn't win it. Uh, They came came second. But the party which actually won it, the Popular Party, did not uh, have the ability to assemble a majority from the parties that did get elected. Is Sanchez showing perhaps uh, insufficient humility here? I've possibly, but I mean, when you have 11 different parties in Parliament, which I think mm. is the, the situation, um, uh, and the maths, you either have another election or the maths dictate you have to kind of do, you know, all kinds of, you know, dodgy, dodgy deals. And so, there's, of course, no guarantee that another election will return anything more conclusive. Exactly. Um, um, but then, of course, you know, you're, you're locked into a coalition which might be incredibly unstable if it's just going to take a few people to sort of walk away. I mean, I, mean, I guess, you know, Puigdemont's party knows now that it, you know, has the, you know, has the, a, a key place in a, in, 
in this coalition and could walk away at any time. Um, so yes, I mean, you know, it, look, it looks like, like a done deal, doesn't it? I mean, in, but where would we be the next time some sort of you know crisis comes along? I, I, I hear the, um, uh, the one of the part of the promises is that Catalonia regains control of its railway system. So uh, <laughs> that, you know, well, the, the, the struggle has all been worth it, comrades. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is, is there an argument, Lynn? And I'm sure this is one Sanchez will make, if somewhat self-servingly, that this will actually promote uh, reconciliation. You, you bring the separate Separatists into the national government. We all work together. Uh, common aims, etc., etc., etc. I get. Well, they want to come home, don't they? Oh so, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the price of the deal is an amnesty to yes. hundreds of people who participated yeah. in the 2017 referendum. Yeah, and possibly many more than than hundreds. So yeah, they do want to come home. And if the price of coming home is going along and creating a new, you know, status quo, then I guess your achievement is. Mm. But I guess they're not going to stop being Catalan separatists, are they, just because of this deal? Well, see, I I wondered about this bill, and I I wondered if there was anything we could read into what Puigdemont uh, said, and granted that this may have lost one or two things in the translation, but he did talk of resolving the historic conflict between Catalonia and Spain. Now, that is not the same thing as saying leveraging Catalonia off Spain and setting out Mm -hmm. on our own. That is a... That is a willfully ambiguous statement, is it not? It sounds like it to me, doesn't it? It sounds, um, you know, it could be either thing, couldn't it? Mm. Yeah, we'll resolve the conflict by separating. We'll resolve the conflict by burying the hatchet. I mean, which, which way? I mean, my I guess is on his track record, he's thinking of greater and greater autonomy. But, you know, let's see. Well, again, that's a, a, another argument which I suspect Sanchez is making, not least to himself, Lynn, that if you bring uh, separatists into national government, you don't necessarily encourage separatism. You, you effectively neutralise it. Um, yeah, I guess so. Maybe he wants to become like one of the little uh, micro-states of which Australia has dozens, um, <laughs> raising his own flag and, and saying, you know, from, from, from here to that wall over there, I'm the king. Um, I, it's the, it's also that old argument, isn't it, that you make change from within. You can't do it from outside, so you join you join the party, you join the organisation, and pretend that you're going to be able to make uh, change from within. But I think that this is um, acquiescence, and that his ambiguity is probably more about saving face. Okay, well, let's look at the United States, where the Republican presidential candidates who are not Donald Trump and who are therefore seeking to convince GOP primary voters that they are the second craziest in the field, gathered last night in Miami for another evening's determined avoidance of reality, courtesy and dignity. For all the energetic bloviating of the participants, however, the most popular of them is currently polling 42 points behind a charmless geriatric con man facing 91 felon counts related to offences including but not limited to bribing a porn star, stealing classified material and conspiring to overthrow the Republic. Um, Bill, did we learn anything much from this spectacle? Uh, I think we learned that none of them seem likely to beat Donald Trump in a primary. <laughs> I think ongoing concerns, and, and that they're willing to use all kinds of nasty language about each other. Um, and, and but also that the, the American politics seems to be taking place in a, in a bubble. Um, I guess we 
some of us suspected this for a while, but you know the idea, you know this kind of the rhetoric about the Middle East, you know, go Israel, smash Hamas. It's going to be really easy, just kind of you know keep on going um, as, as part of it. Um, you know, like, an otherwise a kind of you know very inward-looking view of America's place in the world. Well, we do have some audio of that somewhat unnuanced assessment of the current Israel-Hamas conflict. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. They're terrorists. They're massacring innocent people. They would wipe every Jew off the globe if they could. He cannot live with that threat. It is not that Israel needs America. America needs Israel. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to this Islamic terrorism, and we need to make sure that we have their backs in that process. Uh, Lynn, what did you make of that? Um, I think that um, DeSantis's um, wipe Hamas off the face of the earth is an appeal to um, the uh, Christian evangelical belt. Mm-hmm. That, um, uh, in America, they are great supporters of Israel. And um, Nikki Haley, I, I've been reading and hearing a lot about her today and, and, and really her strength that she seems to want to fall back on is um, a serious approach to foreign policy, uh, which is a you know, good use of her background. But um, I, there's, there, there don't seem to be any ideas. Get rid of Hamas. Yeah, okay. Um, how? What yeah. comes next? Yes, it's, it's easy. <laughs> there, there, there are one or two fairly obvious follow-ups to the statement, <laughs> let's get rid of Hamas. Yes, yeah, yeah, the first one is, and then what? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that we are in the realm of the C team. We've gone below <laughs> the B team. Um, and um, uh, they, there is a level of desperate, desperation that I think we're going to um, see and hear from here on. Those three um, uh, regional elections that took place on Tuesday evening, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, really showed uh, that it's... It, to me, anyway, my interpretation of it is that it's still very much uh, domestically focused. Um, people are uh, starting to express what polls have for a long time found, <laughs> that generally the American public is pro-choice. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be pro-abortion to be pro-choice. Um, uh, in the same way that they are uh, in the majority uh, pro-gun control. And maybe these sort of uh, regional successes for democratic policy will start to see an easing up on the of the extreme rhetoric that we've seen and from you know DeSantis and and Haley talking about foreign policy maybe this is also a reflection that they don't have any ideas for um, domestic um, uh, they don't have any domestic policies either I, I think yeah. it's it's probably the case that some of the hostility expressed among the candidates was essentially theatrical but between Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy possibly not In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. We got to go further. Uh, Nikki Haley versus Vivek Ramaswamy there. Um, We should talk a bit about Vivek Ramaswamy, Bill, hopefully on the assumption that we're just doing this while we still can. Um, 
are you surprised that he has gone as far into this as he has? I mean, obviously, he has considerable financial resources of his own propping him up, but he hasn't been entirely laughed off the stage yet. No, and I guess somebody somewhere is telling him, you know, you want to be a Trump-like insurgent outsider. How do you create that uh, impression um, if you're not Trump? And you do it by attacking the establishment, attacking the blob, attacking people like Nikki Haley who have been in positions of, uh, you know, UN representative for, for Trump's administration. So, you know, kind of, I, I guess that, that, that that's his game plan. But, um, you know, we, we could hear, you know, almost from that sort of you know, visceral reaction from the crowd, you know, that, that wasn't going down very well. Well, it, it is funny you should say that, Bill, because Ramaswamy does have some thoughts on the establishment. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first? Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which Ramaswamy. case, we've got two of them on stage. Mr. Ramaswamy, thank you. Yes, I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, well, we got two of you on stage. The second thing that I will say is I wear heels. They're not for a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. Um, in fairness to Ramaswamy, Lynn, though he cannot time a line to save himself, that is quite a good joke about there being two candidates with three-inch heels on stage, obviously having a bit of a pop there at Ron DeSantis, who is widely believed uh, to be augmenting his footwear. To be wearing lifts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's a low blow, isn't it? I mean... Literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, quite pathetic. Um, and I think that if he's got the... Uh, if he like you say, Bill, if he's trying to be the uh, the sub-Trump Trump, um, he's, he, he's yeah, he can't deliver a line. And um, that sort of personal attack is, oh, it's, it's a, he's just giving away his lack of character, I think. But the personal attacks thing, as we discovered just finally on this one, Bill, they, they kind of work. It became a trademark of Donald Trump's first campaign. And he does have a peculiar savant genius for giving people the derogatory nickname. And, and they mm. stuck to people. Absolutely. Yeah. And we all know who lock her up refers to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess... You know, if, if 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 that's your aim is to kind of be a populist and to engage, then you know. But then you've got to be able to deliver the lines. And if if Ramaswamy can't do that, then he's, he ain't going to be the Trump too, is he? Well, on the subject of delivering lines, we now turn to an item contrived largely to humiliate our panelists, which I, for one, have long argued is something we do not do nearly often enough. Boffins at Stanford University have posited that tongue twisters can be used to determine the intoxication level of the person attempting to pronounce them, and that. Apps could perhaps be developed, which would lock out of their cars people unable to do the thing about Peter Piper picking a peck of pickled peppers, or alert bar staff that they were already sufficiently refreshed. Um, Lynn, I'm not sure whether I'm buying this or whether I'm tempted to lapse into that you know, tabloid newspaper columnist blowhard thing of what are these scientists doing all day? Because frankly, I feel like I could have told them that having had a few drinks makes it harder to say stuff. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. I Maybe mean, this, 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 this is this is a <laughs> this is a report from the Institute of the Bleeding Obvious, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. And but they they were trying to um, uh, take it a bit further and say this is something you know. Obviously, I think the idea is you have a little microphone in the 
the handle of your your car door, and if you <laughs> and if you if you stutter or stumble or slur your words when you're trying to put your key in, then it doesn't unlock. I mean, yeah, okay, but you know there are some people who stutter and slur anyway, right? So- they, they they have acknowledged that this is a difficulty. I mean, Bill, I'm mostly annoyed I wasn't asked to participate in the in the study, in, in which the- which which did literally involve having several drinks and trying to read a, stuff out. A seven hour drinking session. I know. Oh, it's, it's, it's great. It could but, become my hobby as well but, as my but, job. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the way that this is kind of, you know, as, as you say, part of the Institute of the Bleeding Obvious. But, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago, you know, the, the police in a suburb of Edinburgh Indeed. famously got people to say the Leith police dismisseth us <laughs> to see if they were drunk or not. And it kind of, and actually it spread across the British Empire. I think even on Australian courts, they attempted to use this as a, as, a, as a testing of proof. But now they can kind of dice up the audio into one second bits and test it against an algorithm and machine learn it and da 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 da. Or you could just try and say, you know, well, you do, you do both have in front of you sealed envelopes. Well, they're not really sealed envelopes. They're sort of one piece of paper on top of another another piece of paper. Um, Lynn, I will ask you first to lift off the top piece of paper and contemplate uh, what lies beneath. There will be something, I suspect, for you to read out in order to demonstrate to our listeners that you are entirely sober. Mm-hmm. What, what have you got there? If you if you look at the... Look beneath... Remove, what does Remove that say the, there? This one? Yeah, try that one. If a dog chews shoes, whose shoes does he choose? That's not bad. That's well done there. Bill, do you, do you want to try yours? Do you have to do it quicker now? Just to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. like pick up, pick up the pace a bit. If a dog chews shoes, whose shoes does he choose? Oh, not bad. Not um, bad. What's the next one? How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? See, we heard that one at the top of the show. I maintain that this one's actually pretty easy. Yeah, it is very easy. Uh, there's just lots well, I think you said a wood. I think you got a wood rather than a could when you said it at the top. Really? Of the yes. Okay. How well, much that's all right. See, chuck could chuck wood. Okay. You're supposed to say wood, aren't you? I mean, if if not, we can we can tidy that up for the podcast, <laughs> and, and you'll just sound wrong. Um, Lynn, what's the next one? If two witches were watching two watches, which witch would watch which watch? Not bad. Can you beat that, Bill? Without looking. <laughs> okay, no one likes a show. <laughs> if two witches were watching two watches, which witch would what? what no. no. Okay. My attempts like at intonation. This, is, this yeah. is great. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's like the a, water's getting to me. It's now. like a penalty shootout, and yeah. you're 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 one down. Um, <laughs> Lynn, you can you can pretty much seal this with this one. Give it a try. Imagine an imaginary menagerie manager managing an imaginary menagerie. Ice cold. Yeah. Ice cold. I've never even heard this one before. Did no, you make it up in the No, in the I've, I've, it's news to me as oh, well. Okay. Could... Chat GPT, make me a time <laughs> Imagine an imaginary menagerie manager managing an imaginary manager. No! Lynn, I think you, you have an unconquerable lead mm. now, but if you want to go for five out of five, this and, is, and this, this is this is the big one. Okay, Betty Botter bought a bit of butter, but the butter Betty bought was bitter. So Betty bought a better butter, and the better butter Betty bought was better than the bitter butter Betty bought before. Splendid. Betty Botter bought a bit of butter, but the butter Betty bought was bitter. So Betty bought a better butter, and the better butter Betty bought was better than the bitter butter Betty bought before. Uh, an amount of redemption there uh, for you, Bill. Uh, Still we... went down. Out, <coughs> out in the final. What was it? 5-3, three, th- I think. 5-3. Uh, Lynn, congratulations. Um, and Lynn O'Donnell and Bill Hayton, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on today's show, it is time for our letter from New York City. Here is our correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan. 
Where does one place end and another begin? Geographic borders have been in the news a lot in recent years, and not often for happy reasons. On the global level, the borderless world that was briefly dreamed of at the end of the Cold War seems as far away as it's ever been. Within nation-states and localities, boundaries between areas can be more or less distinct depending on social, geographic and economic factors. Even within the UK, there's a broad spectrum. At one end, there are the so-called peace walls in Belfast, physical barriers that separate majority Protestant from majority Catholic populations in contentious areas. On the other, there are many places, like the suburbs that I grew up in, where there are few noticeable boundaries between areas that have different names superimposed above them on Google Maps. One of the first things I noticed after arriving in New York City from London was that NYC's neighbourhoods are much more sharply delineated than anywhere I've lived in the UK. And I'm not just talking about official boundaries, such as those that exist between the city's five boroughs. I'm talking about the informal borders between neighbourhoods that are more often than not established by social consensus. A major reason for this seems to be a characteristic that NYC shares with many US cities, which is its grid system. Much of the city's road network is laid in neat rectangles. This is particularly the case in Manhattan, where long, straight streets run the length and breadth of the island. These long, straight roads lend themselves to the neat delineation of neighbourhoods in the collective psyche, Sometimes, neighbourhood names reflect their location relative to major streets. To take the names of two adjacent neighbourhoods in Lower Manhattan, Tribeca is an abbreviation of the phrase Triangle Below Canal Street and Soho of the phrase South of Houston. Last week, the New York Times published an interactive digital map of the city. It was based on more than 37,000 drawings and responses by readers who were invited to name and draw their neighbourhoods, as well as data collected from older survey results from the former news website DNA Info. After the publication of the initial map, further submissions from readers brought 36 new neighbourhood names to the map. These included Starrett City, Beverly Square West, Lefferts Manor, Wingate, the Broadway Triangle, Pigtown and the Hole. The map reveals how neighbourhoods are defined by the extent to which people believe they exist and where, rather than by any formal definitions. And a follow-up analysis by The Times reveals the energy that real estate agents pour into creating new neighbourhood names as a branding exercise. Failed attempts at marketable abbreviations include Bococar for Boreham Hill, Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens, Sobro for South Bronx, Sparha for Spanish Harlem, Soha for South Harlem, and Rambo for right around the Manhattan Bridge overpass. You can't blame real estate brokers for trying to define neighbourhoods in this way. When it comes to the borders between neighbourhoods, the stakes are high for them. The location of a house can fundamentally alter the perception of its value. The Times looks at the example of a three-bedroom, nearly $1.8 million property on the blurry border between Crown Heights and Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. 
The paper points out that if the apartment is listed as being in Crown Heights, it becomes one of the most expensive three-bedroom units in the neighbourhood. But if the apartment is in Prospect Heights, it becomes a relative bargain for the area. There's nothing I can do to affect the borders between neighbourhoods in NYC. I can only try to enjoy them in my own way. That means using the New York Times map to find sharp borders between neighbourhoods, then going there to try to bestride them like a colossus, then realising that not even the very sharp boundaries are sharp enough for me to bestride, but still wanting to extract some kind of thrill at passing from one distinct geographical area to another in rapid succession, and deciding to achieve this by crossing from one side of the road to another repeatedly, just like a colossus. Henry Ree Sheridan, thank you for that. That was our New York radio correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan. Uh, today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our studio manager was Callum McLean. And a big thanks to our panellists, Lynn O'Donnell and Bill Hayton. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.